she is the only one in an all-white family, and I, as a white woman, raise her to be a Black woman. How does a daughter of privilege and class, status, and race raise a daughter of Africa? How does raising a Black child change her view of the world in a time of unveiling racism and racial injustice? What is the role of the body of Christ in all this? These questions and more we'll explore while getting real, immersed in truth. To the Grid Podcast, getting real, immersed in truth, intersecting hard conversations with the gospel. We seek and speak the truth about what's going on around us. I'm your host, Robrina Reddle. This is the first episode of our series, Conversations in Black and White. Today, I'm talking to a white woman raising a black child from Africa. Today, my guest is Missy Kohler. She is wife to Bill, mother of four. She is the communications coordinator for the high school ministry of CREW, a parachurch organization. Welcome, Missy. Thanks, Rena. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for uh, sitting down with me and having this conversation. Um, Missy is a white woman and I am a black woman, hence conversations in black and white. Uh, and Missy and I, we've known each other for 17 plus years, something like that. Right. Nope. Okay. Long and time. <laughs> yeah, it is a long time. And you have four children. Uh, two of your children are the same age as my two kids, and they hung out together quite a bit before you all moved from Lincoln to Orlando, Florida. And also, when my husband was deployed to Iraq, your family walked alongside us uh, for that almost year that he was gone. And um, and then you all joined us to welcome him home. When he came back, you all met us at uh, Seacrest Field to welcome home the soldiers. And I remember Troy said that you were the first person he saw when he was coming in on the bus. He said he couldn't find me, but he saw you. And so I thought that was interesting. I'm like, it figures. <laughs> Missy's smiling face. You're probably jumping up and down because you're a very enthusiastic person. Um, I also remember when you brought Lucy home from Africa and all of the emotions that went along with that. And you and I have been fortunate enough to engage in honest and raw conversations about race in America, uh, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have this podcast with you. So um, let's just start by telling me about your upbringing. Okay, sure. Um, well, I grew up with in an Air Force family. My dad um, was a three-star general when I was born, and um, I lived in different countries. I lived in Korea and Brussels, and then my dad retired, and I grew up in um, Omaha, Nebraska, and then my dad was an executive, and upbringing was um privileged 
was um, a pretty, pretty cush experience for, I didn't really want for much um, as far as material thing. And then also my parents who were believers um, were loving and um, godly people. Um, so I, I am the youngest of four and my sisters are quite a bit older. So I was lonely, um, mm. in different ways, um, as I was growing up, but I'm, I'm very thankful for the family, um, that I had, that they were, um, rooted in their faith in Christ. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And of course, those are differences that we, sh- that we have, because I did not grow up like that. <laughs> um, I did not uh, become a Christian until I was 34, 35, something like that. So uh, anyway, and I, of course, I did not have a cush. I was born to a single mother who struggled. So that kind of covers it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when did you become aware of privilege, both in the sense of class and systems? Hmm. That's such a good question, because as I look back, there were there were markers that I maybe could have seen um, that, you know, my my parents um, hosted these dinner parties for, well, Billy Graham was in my home. My parents well, did a dinner party. Billy Graham was in my home. Billy Graham was in your home. Okay. Yes, my parents hosted a, dig, uh, a dinner party for him. Um, and, you know, I was five at times, so I didn't really understand that. But we had a driver. My dad had a driver that took him to work. We had live-in nannies. Um things that at the time probably seemed normal to me because I was just a kid. Um, But then as I grew older, I started to realize that wasn't normal. Um, I do remember being pulled over. My never talked to me uh, about what to do if I was pulled over or I never listened. That was also a possibility. (laughs) Um, But I was speeding. I knew I was speeding. And when this police officer pulled me over, I got out of the car, like full on opened the car and went running to her to go, I'm so sorry. I was speeding. I messed up. And, um, and the way she responded to me in that I can now see um, was a lot of privilege there that she was like, Oh, privilege. Okay. Um, how did she respond? And then, Oh, get back in the car. Like she didn't call me honey, but it's like that. Like, Oh, Oh, you dumb little girl. <laughs> okay. What are, you, what are you doing? Get back in the car. And, um, and yeah, I can remember being embarrassed, but not like I, know that I'd even done anything wrong mm. other than the speaking part. But mm-hmm. as far as getting out of the car, approaching an officer, mm-hmm. waving my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I also can remember, this is a common theme. And this is maybe the first time I recognized privilege is um, my husband and I were getting married and I forgot to, there's a blood test you have to do. Yeah. Right. 
Yes. And I thought it was a shot because I'm super smart like that. I thought we had to get a shot and I didn't know you have to wait for the blood test to come back. I'm also a procrastinator. I get the blood test until right, like it was days before we were like the Friday we were getting married on Sunday. Oh, wow. And they're like, well, you're not going to, you're not going to get your results back. Um, and I was crying. Oh, I can't get paid. Um, <laughs> and my dad made a couple calls. And it was fine. You know, it was just, he, he knew who to, that was kind of the first time I went, huh, well, that worked out. And I knew why it worked out. I think before that point in my life, a lot of things worked out and I didn't necessarily know they worked out because of privilege or connections, you know, being my dad being in a position of power Mm. for community. Mm. Um, So um, but then it was even later on in, you know, really in the past 15, um, years that I've, it's, my eyes have been open more to how seeing it everywhere, mm. power dynamics, privilege, um, that's how I would answer that. Wow. Yeah. Well, he was a three-star general. I was in the military and yeah. You do have a lot of power and privileges. Uh, please, for general. Yeah, you would do what he said too. <laughs> yes, I would do what he said too. Yes, I would. <laughs> okay, so the the next part that I, I wanted to ask you, now that you the way you've answered that question, Bill did not grow up with the same power slash privilege as far as class, so. Uh, because his upbringing, I, I, I believe she, his mom was a single parent also, so, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay, so there's struggle there. Yes. And also there's, I have to do a lot of things on my own, you know, I'd be very self-sufficient, you know, type of growing Absolutely. up, which um, there are wonderful things ab- about that because it does prepare you a little earlier for life. Uh, but there is a there is some part of childhood missing uh, in that mm-hmm. also, but uh, I, what was it like transitioning to uh, from having a father who could just make a phone call to having a husband who would basically pull you pull yourself by your bootstraps kind of guy mm-hmm. and see what I can do. That's oh, that's a good question. I think. First of all, I didn't transition right away to, I think I kind of held on to that connection to my dad. Um, I didn't want to um, give up my name, my last name. I wanted to be my own woman, but because I knew that last name opened up doors for me. Mm. So I guess I did understand my privilege pretty well, didn't I? <laughs> Um, and so I think I still, I mean, to be quite honest, I came into marriage with a, a big t-shirt I wore to bed that said, my heart belongs to daddy and so do my credit. Oh my and Bill, Bill had to stop wearing that to bed. <laughs> That's not his favorite. So I think the, the honest answer to that is I didn't make the transition that kind of held on to that um, connection Mm -hmm. and what it meant for me. 
And then the second answer is that Bill, um, what was significant to me as a person who wanted to be taken care of Mm. was that he could take care of me. Mm. He was a hard worker and, um, you know, pretty quickly picking up responsibilities of finances, also things around the house. I mean, you know, our dynamics in our marriage, Bill does a lot. (laughs) Um, lot. He's a good guy. Yeah. Yes. And I think I, I mean, I don't want to say I took advantage of that because, but you know, we made a system Mm -hmm. in our marriage that did kind of play on me being coming from privilege and having things done for me. And did I know how to clean the bathroom? No, I did not. Um, And so those kind of things, um, you know, kind of, we merged to make our own system that way. I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, it does. I have to say, uh, there is a like template, I think that a lot of Christians live by as far as what the woman is supposed to do and what the man is supposed to be do. Uh, But I think the reality of marriage is you create your own system as far as what works for each individual's personality, strengths, weaknesses, and uh, it may not look like what the prototype says it should look like, but I think that as long as it is done in a loving and gracious and understanding way, that that's just, that's just your marriage. It, it doesn't have to look particularly like this way or that way or the 1950s. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, it's a partnership. And both parties decide what what will work best for their family and their home. Yes, because because Um, you also have wonderful things that you bring to the table. You are a very celebratory person. You do a lot of really fun things for your family and your kids. You are very, making memories is very important to you. And that is uh, great in a childhood because they can remember, oh, remember when we did this and remember we did that and when mom did this. And then even some of the things that you feel that you are failing in, uh, the kids love it because it's funny because you see mom did this and, you know, so it's kind of good because they go back and they can look at some of those things and you know, I think it's a it's a good balance between you and Bill that he is very pragmatic and yeah. you're very creative. And so it's like you need that balance. I think you all balance well in that. Oh, thanks. I will say one more thing about that in regards to our backgrounds and us coming together. I do remember he came to me with our first budget. I'd never had to live by a budget before and present it to me and I cried and I was like what what is this and then he um the next year he had been able to work it there was some more money to put in the important categories in my opinion which were eating out and shopping and a little bit more in those he came so excited big grin on his face to offer this to me and he was met with crying again. <laughs> what? This is... So some of that is about my own um, 
like maybe it's not ever quite good enough, but <laughs> it does tell you there was there was definitely a, a bit of a clash there in coming together. That's the transition into marriage. Yeah. Okay. Um, in that, you all decided to adopt. Uh, why did you decide to adopt? Well, um, we had three kids. Remember, our youngest was a baby still. And I was driving alone. I don't know how I got alone at that point. Um, and something came on the Christian radio about adoption. I wasn't trying to, you know, convince adopt. But as I heard it, just this, something that's happened at different times in my life. It's just a sense that I get of God. You know, he talks about, um, I will give, uh, giving you the desire it's like in my experience, there's a scent, like a hand reaching into my heart to place that there. And I heard that and I, I can remember kind of gasping and almost, almost saying out loud, I think we're supposed to do that. Mm. And I went back to Bill and I can remember right where he was. He was putting some clothes away in his closet. And I said, Hey babe, have you ever thought of us adopting? I think I said international that's the the track I was thinking and I said if you ever thought of us adopting internationally and he's a very simple man and you know Rebrina and he gave me a simple answer he just said no and just kind of shrugged <laughs> and I walked away with my I mean I don't know why I didn't think to ask a follow-up or anything I just walked away like oh that just you know to my spiritual experience I just had but I asked him to pray later on. I asked him to pray and pray. Bill, you, he prays and he yes. prayed for five years. And in that time, it was a refining, maybe it was four before we made the decision, but it was such a refining time for me to really ask the question, why, why would we do this? Am I seeing myself as a rescuer mm. of someone mm -hmm. or am I the hero of a story for someone? Mm. Am I wanting our family to look a certain way to project an image that we, we do good for the world? Mm -hmm. um, I, I had to wrestle through a lot of um, motives within me that I think, I do think that was actually God's call on my life at that moment in the car. Mm -hmm. But I needed those four years of refining and purifying so that, and I still obviously still a lot more refining and purifying, mm -hmm. but so that I could kind of understand what it was he was calling me to, that it will rescue someone else, but was part of his rescue for me, his plan mm -hmm. for me, mm -hmm. his it was a part what really drew Bill after those years of praying that, you know, Bill said, I just want to live out what has done in our lives. Mm. I just, he has adopted us and I want to be an actual walking picture of that. Wow. Um, so the two of us together um, then came to the same point um, years later. And what made you choose to adopt a child from Africa? Yeah, it was, again, a kind of a similar experience that I, I remember. Um, well, what happened was Bill had said um, he wanted us to adopt a child that was in the 1040 window 
familiar with that yeah, the um, longitude and latitude of the least evangelized people. Okay, so that's the window. 1040 means the the least evangelized people. So you wanted to you wanted to adopt a child in that area. That that was important to my husband. I thought that was weird and I started praying for God to change his heart. Um which that went on for several months because I thought a child is a child is a child anywhere, anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, I'm sure someone else had to come to me and say, could it be God's leading through you, through your husband? Mm-hmm. Um, and also realizing my husband does not ask, just doesn't ask for anything. He's a very content man. Mm-hmm. And it must have been, you know, I trusted God spoke to me about something mm-hmm. related to adoption would I trust that God had spoken to Bill? Mm-hmm. And as we looked at that area, I mean, it's just funny that one day this little, just this little bit of Ethiopia falls in it. Mm. Um, in my remembrance, so it, that's what I saw. Mm-hmm. And it just, I mean, I can remember thinking for whatever reason, that's it. I, that's it. That's the, like, I just had, again, that sense. And then I can remember almost in the next breath going, what am I thinking? We're this white couple that lives in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Like, how are we going to raise a black daughter? And then my next thought was the hair. Yes. I'm sorry to say yes. that it was overwhelming. Yes. Um, <laughs> now, did you know about the hair before? I mean, it, I mean, I'm sure you you can see the difference in the hair, but that does go to my next question, the learning curve. Yes. So there's a learning curve in raising a yes. black child if you are not yourself or if you don't have experience. Fortunately, we're in Lincoln, which is the capital. So there are people of color here, uh, not probably as much. I don't know what the percentage is, but um, I've lived in other places that are much more diverse. So of yeah. course, that's what I noticed as soon as I moved here. But for you, raise, raising a black child, the learning curve, i.e. the hair texture, looks or reactions from other people, and also navigating the school system. Um, when did you realize that things were not going to be the same for her and you as they were or are with your biological children? Just start with the hair. That was my first opening experience after having Lucy home to Walmart to buy hair product for her. And she's still, I mean, she's a baby. So I realized that this Walmart, I thought I knew, inside and out had a whole aisle of natural hair care products that I didn't know existed. Um, and, uh, so that, that actually did, that was a journey because we weren't used to paying a lot of money for our other kids products. It wasn't, I realized this is an investment and I realized how I take care of my daughter will show the black community um, that I mean business. I don't know how else to say it. I don't want to, like, I I try not to live to prove myself to others, and yet I do. 
Um, but it's not about that. It's not about, oh, I wanted to protect an image. It was about honoring a culture and, and saying, I, I respect the, the, the difference. I see the beauty and I will invest in caring for her. Um, and I didn't do that to be, I'm saying that. And yet I still didn't. I didn't learn how to braid. Like I, there were limits I would and wouldn't do. Um, well, I have to say this on, on that particular part. Yes, it matters what her hair looks like. And when I see white people with black children and the black child's hair is unkept or almost shaved, like very, very short because they don't want to deal with it or don't know what to do with it. To, to me, that's basic care. So it, it says to me, like you said about the honoring, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to honor her in this way. And uh, it saddens me. And usually what I do is I'll go give them a card to my hairstylist. <laughs> and I will say, hey, that baby's hair should be combed better or you know I have a stylist that can help you so yeah to me it's kind of like yeah I don't want to deal with it I don't want to educate myself on it so I'm just not going to do anything I'm just going to shave it off and um, I cannot even tell you how many times I have taken my daughter to a hair salon that told me first of all the hair salon said they specialize because I always ask do you have anyone there who can do um, black hair or biracial hair since my children are biracial biracial and they will say yes. Then when we go, her hair is so thick, and they'll say, oh, you just need to cut it off. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's what I need to do. <laughs> we went to a couple that, if, if we couldn't get into our stylist for some reason, Savannah had some sort of event that she had to go to, so we'd go to a quick. And one time we went to one for them to flat iron her hair, and when she came back, her hair was, out over her head and I'm like okay yeah that's not it I went back to that salon and I said I want to show you this because this is not flat ironed and mm -hmm. I showed them inside her because you can tell that they didn't get close enough to her scalp and it was just frizzy and I told them you know if you don't have someone here who knows how to do this you should not say that you do I would rather you just say no I'm sorry we don't have anyone that specializes in ethnic hair just tell me that and let me move forward instead of me bringing my daughter here, you spending an hour and a half, me spending the money to have to come back and correct you. I would just mm -hmm. rather you be truthful. Right. But I appreciate that you see that it is a value to them. To some people, it's just hair. Uh, but I was watching a video on YouTube of this white woman. She also has adopted children. I think she has three children who are black. She has two biological children, three children who are black, one boy, two girls. And that woman does videos for people and she will show you the product. It, I, it, it was a beautiful video. She talks you through the whole process and she tells you how to take care of their hair because it is their crown is what she calls it. She tells you how they need to sleep on a satin pillowcase to make sure their hair doesn't come out. And I, it, it brought me to tears. I'm like, this woman, she took the time and the care to learn so that her baby 
feels loved and cared for. And then people can see that too. Oh, wow. She, people will think either she takes her to a salon or she really takes care of that baby's hair, you know? And, and, and for us, that's a basic care thing. I would say, I'm, I'm going to say not for, I'm going to say I'll speak for all black people for, for me, if I see a baby and a black baby with a white mama and that hair is taken care of, I say that white mama is taking care of that baby. And I'm happy for that baby because I know that mm. mama cares. And if they're not, then I have a problem. I'm like, okay, you know, it's nice for you to want to do this, but can you please take care of her? Yeah. So anyway, I know that you and I have had conversations about Lucy and her hair. And I think I told you that I was going to call you out if I saw that baby <laughs> and that hair was not done. I remember telling you, oh yeah, well, you better take care of her hair. <laughs> well, well, and there have been, I mean, that's what I realized I needed to learn in the beginning. I learned from adoptive moms, white moms who had adopted. They were my experts. Mm-hmm. And I realized that that isn't actually like that. There's something helpful there where there's a theory, there's a shared experience. Mm-hmm. My experts were, um, were black moms and that I needed to make sure I was um, asking like asking the questions there. Mm-hmm. And that's where one of my friends said to me once, Lucy, I said, oh, I just, I love Lucy's hair, the the color that it is at the ends from the sun. It's just such a pretty um, lighter brown. And she said, that's dead hair. You need to cut, you need to get a haircut. And I was like, oh, oh, whoops. I just thought, isn't that pretty? What's, you know, and she's like, no, that's you. I mean, she didn't say it. She said the first part. That's dead hair. You need, but, but she was very, you know, like, it's for trim. <laughs> right. And I, it, I needed that because I really was literally thinking, oh, doesn't she have a cute, you know, her own hair. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> her own ombre look. <laughs> Yeah, there's that show, uh, This Is Us, where Randall was the black little baby that was adopted by uh, the family. What is the family? I can't remember the name of the family. Do you watch This Is Us? <laughs> well, anyway. Um, yeah. Well, there is, a, there is an episode where this black woman, she sees the back of Randall's head and she can see bumps there. And she tells the mother, mm. you know, uh, you need to take him to a black barber because he shouldn't have those bumps on the back of his neck. And um, yeah, I, I thought it was so awesome that they put that in the in the show because that's a reality. It's like little things that she wouldn't know that the black mom would know. And And at first she was a little taken aback by it but she also realized, well, she does know things I don't know, and I could use this um, information and this relationship. And so I just thought that was the neatest thing. I was like, that is so good that they addressed that. I mean, it's something so small, but it just shows that there's these little differences in culture and that we should honor. So I just, I do love that you, that you chose yes. to honor her and all of her culture. Uh, and 
Yes. Oh yeah, you are, you answered that how you how you educated yourself. So your resources were some of the white mothers who uh, also adopted, but your experts were the black mothers that were willing to speak into that and that you were willing to ask the question to. I have yeah. to say that. And you, yeah, go ahead. I mean, you were one of the you were one of those moms for me. Um, I remember another episode of This Is Us is about the sunscreen. Do I need to put sunscreen on him and asked you that act question? And I can remember you saying the sun's just as damaging <laughs> to my skin as it is to anybody else's. It's the same sun. And I just, it was so great. And I'm so thankful not for that and many, many other conversations in your world to um, come alongside me in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but I did want to add one other thing with the learning curve. And I don't, you were asking about the differences between Lucy and my biological kid. But one thing I noticed so early on, like a baby, again, Walmart, how many, how much of my life have I spent at Walmart? Mm -hmm. Lucy is a baby sitting in the cart at Walmart that she would notice people of color, um, specifically black people, mm -hmm. and would light, her eyes would light up, mm. her face would light up. Mm -hmm. And to realize that was very important for me to understand early on representation mm. and to understand a connection there that I want to foster. Mm -hmm as her mom and I want to to steward that relationship um, for her with the black community. So this is a real observation. I remember the first time I met Lucy, she gave me the biggest smile. There was a sense of familiarity as we as she wrapped her little finger around mine, I thought to myself, she sees me. And I see you too, little Lucy. Um, and so that has been, uh, that's another part of the piece. I wish that I recognized how important that was for all my kids. <laughs> I didn't, you know, truth is that I really did this. My eyes became open because it was, it was family. It was as close as it could be. It touched me in my inner circle. I wish that I had, um, before Lucy bought dolls of all, you know, that mm. looked all different ways mm. for my, um, my older daughter. Um, I didn't, mm -hmm. and I didn't think about it, mm -hmm. but it really was through the process of you know, wanting to adopt, that I started to think more about that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's interesting. I remember when Savannah was little, I did not buy dolls that did not have some sort of tent. I didn't buy blonde dolls and I didn't, mm -hmm. if they, if they were white blonde dolls, I did not buy that doll. I bought dolls that were like, Barbie has a, Polynesian doll and a Latinx doll and of course black Barbie in all 
forms that I could find her. I did not buy, I did not want her to find beauty in that way. And that's why I didn't do it. Now, one time Troy came home with a, like I think it was a four doll pack that was on sale at Tours R Us and they were all blonde. And he didn't show me the dolls before he gave it to her, but he presented her with the dolls. He was so excited. And he tells me he got them on sale. I was like, are you kidding me? We don't buy blonde dolls. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, what? But it was on sale. I'm like, I do not buy her blonde dolls. Look at her dolls. And of course, by that time I had to let her have the dolls because, you know, it was four pack of Barbies. And that's all she saw. Like, Ooh, look at all these Barbies. So, yes, it was a learning curve for him also. <laughs> right, right. Well, you had to search for those dolls. If you're in Nebraska, it, it's, there's rows and rows or shelves and shelves of the blonde Barbies. Yes, yes. I was very fewer. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, one of the reasons why is because growing up, it was hard for me to find black dolls mm-hmm. and to find them in a different way because they kind of looked like Barbie. They just, the skin tone was different, but the hair was the same and all that. So when I saw dolls that had curly hair, because my daughter had curly hair and then they were black or they had a, some sort of tint to them, I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. I'm getting this doll because I wanted her to be able to see herself in that yeah. doll and to see that this is beautiful. This is normal and not the norm be blonde Barbie. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, as any mom does, we have hopes and dreams for our children. And I'm, I'm just wondering how have your hopes and dreams shifted in light of acknowledging racism and racial injustice in our country? Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting how Lucy coming into our family has changed all of us because I have different hopes and dreams for all of my kids Mm -hmm. now because I I want all of them to see me in all people to see and value the humanity in all people I want them to be able to interact with people of different cultures, people who believe differently than they do Mm -hmm. and to um, be able to honor them and listen well and learn well. Mm. And so I have those dreams for all of my kids with Lucy. There is a different, there is something different as I raise her and she is the only one in an all white family mm-hmm. and i as a white woman raise her to be a black woman mm. and that is a very that weighs very heavily on me mm-hmm. um that responsibility that i need to really depend on the wisdom in that i can be very over focused on myself mm-hmm. and my responsibility in that to make sure I do it right. Um, and it is very important for me or to have representation as we talked about 
and for her to be able to identify um, with, um, well, this is how I want to say it, for her to be able to build her identity based on belonging in our family, based on having a relationship with Christ, mm -hmm. and also being able to um, identify with the community, the black community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Lucy is African American. Mm -hmm. She's Ethiopian. Mm -hmm. and she's American. Mm -hmm. And I remember you telling me she, she doesn't have the same history. Mm -hmm. um, but she will be identified as a black woman. And I want her to be able to own that mm -hmm. and be proud of that mm -hmm. and what it means for her. I don't even understand what it means for her. That's why it feels so daunting to raise her. Mm -hmm. But I, I understand that she will get to choose and define that. Mm -hmm. And so I want to make the path wide for her to understand what our our culture is and how we're choosing to honor and be a part of other cultures and give her the opportunity to be exposed and value um, the black community. Mm -hmm. Really, I want that for her mm -hmm. and all cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the fact that really we're all connected I think mm. that I think if people understand that that we're all connected that my history is your history you know mm. that when when we talk about black history yes I love black history black history month as we acknowledge the contributions that black people have given to the society and other ethnicities have given to the society that we call America. That's the thing I don't get what people don't understand. America is so different in that it took so many different ethnicities coming together to actually build the country. Like it, it took everyone. And um, yeah, so, so for my thing is, it's, we're all connected. It's, it's all of our history, really. Yes. Or not, we want to acknowledge that history because, you know, unfortunately, in some instances, unfortunately, white people were there in the black history. Some of the white people oppressed, some lifted up, um, mm. abolitionists, the people who walked along Martin Luther King Jr. You know, it's like there's, there's a connection and even throughout the world, there is a connection. There's a connecting of the dots, especially as brothers and sisters of Christ, you know, in Christ. Uh, right. that, that, to me, should be the primary connection. And that's not always the case uh, because uh, people like to separate. But just because you're acknowledging someone's culture, you're acknowledging uh, the past, you're acknowledging who they are, doesn't take away from the connection. It doesn't take away from that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we should honor each other in that, no matter what the culture is. I had someone tell me before that I didn't have a culture. 
I felt that was so bizarre. Well, yeah, it was a white woman. And, and I said something about our culture and she said, what culture? You don't have a culture. I was like, uh, yeah, I do. And it was, it just showed like, she just did not get to her. It was all meshed together. Like, like this is American culture, but you know, it's no different than when people have these festivals in Nebraska, they have all these little festivals. You have Czech festival, you know, you have the October. Yeah. Festival. Those are celebrating cultures. And so it's like, it, it would just amaze me how they couldn't see that we all have cultures. We, we all have ethnicity because ethnicity is God derived ethnicity, man-made race. So man-made what color you are as far as definition and defining it. God made the ethnicities where you come from, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it is, it's good to hear that you do want to, her to honor that and to understand who she is, really. That's really want what you want, who she is as a person, who she is in Christ, who she is on this earth, since we all have work to do for the Lord. Uh, and he, will he uses every little bit. Every little bit, he will use it. Um, so I, I also want to talk to you about, okay, so your son, Tate, who will be sitting down with me for a conversation in our next episode. Uh, I really appreciate Tate because he is an ally, he's an advocate and an activist for people of color. Uh, I know one time we invited him to Savannah was, actually both Satchel and Savannah were being honored for scholarship through NAACP on a roll or something. And I invited him because I asked him if he'd ever been to, to it. And I thought it would be interesting to him because he is interested in things like that. So he came and there was another couple there. And when I introduced him to them, I said, he's an advocate. And I remember the gentleman saying, wow, that's awesome. Like he just, he got it right away. Cause of course he was a black gentleman too. And when I said, yes, he's an advocate right away. He was like, oh, that's awesome. Like he knows this young man uses his voice. He uses his privilege to speak in to things. Um, so I, I would like to ask you, how do you and Bill raise your children to be anti-racist? Well, as I said before, I do wish we had seen the value before Lucy more um, that I think we did. We raised our kids to pursue people um, and relationships with people who are different than us and to value that, that I do think it was true before Lucy that, um, that's just more interesting, right? Like, um, but I think, again, it became more of a personal issue. And um, I think that one of the things in our family is to be able to have open conversations to, we want our kids to hear us talking about, um, issues that that matter and this is an issue that matters mm -hmm. so, uh, racial justice humanity um, of people and I think we also one of the things that we did I don't know if it's for better or for worse but we would call out our kids and allow them to call us out or question us if things 
seemed like they might be racist, Mm -hmm. that it's been okay in our family to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've also been sensitive to it because of Lucy's young ears, hearing older kids say things, if they attached value judgment to it, they're going to get a mama bear all up in them. Like, for example, I remember... I was one of my kids saying something like, well, brown is an ugly color. Oh, you do not want to know how I responded to that mm. because um, I, I did kind of thinking brown on a piece of paper. Right. Um, or you'd hear people like describe, oh, poop brown. Mm. But then when you're thinking about, what really beauty is Mm. and I think you have to have brown in nature Mm. mountains in the you know and then when you think of you know pigment (laughs) melanin in people's skin Mm -hmm. um so beautiful and I did not want that to be for her to be something she would then go wait browns an ugly color because that's how she self-identified um herself her skin as brown mm-hmm. and um you have that be a conversation so my kids hopefully grow up without that knee-jerk reaction that to the word racism mm-hmm. that they could learn how to examine their own hearts they could learn how to examine their speech Mm. and um that we could have the answer i don't know uh we better ask somebody because we want to take care we want to be sure that we're honoring Mm -hmm. well you all don't just ask people though which is what i appreciate about you because uh some black people feel like i'm not the spokesperson for everyone, every black person, just like every white person isn't the spokesperson for every white person. But you all also choose to educate yourselves um, through books, documentaries, movies, and um, even just relationships, just living and walking alongside someone who expresses themselves and things that they do in their own home or experiences that they've had there one thing I have never heard from you all is nah that didn't really happen or I think you're just being sensitive you know because I have heard that from so many people and I, I've never heard that from you all the, what I have heard that I appreciate it Bill in particular he will say I'm so sorry you had that experience mm-hmm. it, just the acknowledgement that that was real that you had fat experience and I'm going to acknowledge that it was hurtful for you. That just means so much to me. It is sincere. I, I, hear, I have a sincerity and I know, wow, this person is listening to me, number one, and cares about me, number two, which is what we should do with all of our friends, uh, people that we call our friends. You know, that's what we do. Uh, but I, I do find sometimes when I'm friends with white people, they don't want to acknowledge something that I'm expressing that actually happened because it's not their experience. So if it's not my experience, there's no way that really happened. And that gives you the two Americas, 
uh, that we end up living in. So I have to say, you all do a good job of um, acknowledging. And so to me, that is also a good model to your children. Mm. Well, thank you for that. I think we do. We want to sit at the feet of Jesus Mm. and we want to sit and listen to those who have had different experiences from the us, you know, when you realize you weren't taught these things mm-hmm. in school, mm-hmm. it's, I could either say, well, that couldn't be true because I didn't learn it. Mm-hmm. Or I could say, well, that's new information. What am I going to do with that now? Yeah. You know, like, and I think that has, um, and Bill is definitely, he um, has read a lot. He studied a lot and sometimes I ask him just give me the cliff notes and sometimes he does and other times he says you have to do the work yourself um, oh I appreciate that you have to <laughs> yeah yes and uh and I do and I want to be to to be a good learner of um the things that I I haven't experienced yeah I have to say um the do the work thing, that's important. Uh, like you said, cause a lot of people want to take the shortcut, but I think that when you do the work, it is absorbed. Like you absorb it and then it's in you and then you pay closer attention. And it doesn't mean that you have to be on pins and needles every time you're around a person of a particular race and, uh, oh, I'm going to say something wrong. I would say if you feel like you did say something wrong, just acknowledge it and just say, I'm so sorry. I did not mean for it to come out that way or uh, ask them. I'm sorry. Was that offensive to you? I would rather a person say that to me than try to pretend that it didn't happen. You know, I I respect you more because I'm like, oh, they they are asking because they want to ensure. Because to me, it says you're asking because you care about me. And you don't want to hurt me. It's not an intentional thing to hurt me. And so you will acknowledge it or you will ask it and we will say yay or nay. Then you know, and then we move on. Uh, And I think people don't think it's that simple. I think they think everything is going to turn into a big fight or an argument. And it doesn't have to be that way. Of course, you have to know who you're speaking to. Right. When I had an experience that um, I think I was in college and I remember uh, I had just learned this word um, Jorge and I thought that was so cool. I did not know the Spanish language. I didn't know any other languages. <laughs> and then I was with a, um, a black friend of mine we were at, and the server came up and said um, his name was George. He was Hispanic. And I went, oh, Jorge? Mm Because, and I really was clueless about it, okay? I was just like, I learned that. And then, and so at at the the moment, the intent Mm -hmm. was I was, I didn't know. And then I had an opportunity because my friend said to me, Missy, are you serious? Like, do you, like he called me out and Mm -hmm. I went, what? And I can remember that moment, how I went, what? Now give, let me, you know, say my face was bright red. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they both knew she's making a conscious choice to not acknowledge what has just been brought 
to her attention. Mm. And I just, that's something I want to be really mindful of that that happens with me still that I can choose. I can not acknowledge or I can choose to say what, did I, did I just do something wrong? (laughs) Help me understand. And I'm sorry. And I, you know, I wish I could have that moment back, Mm -hmm. but I do have moments now. I still do the same thing now that Mm -hmm. I can choose to acknowledge and play clueless, Mm. or I can ask the question and say, help me learn. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I don't want, I don't want to live in that in that place. Mm. I want to, I want to say the wrong, I'm hoping I'm engaged enough that I'm saying the wrong thing. Mm. Mm. Sometimes if, if I'm hopefully I'm talking enough about things, I'm asking enough questions, I'm involved and I'm getting, I'm receiving feedback mm. mm-hmm. and rather than being defensive, I'm learning from it. Mm-hmm. That's really good that you want to be that engaged. Well, I wanted to read this verse here before I ask my next question. Uh, This is uh, Luke 15, and it's the parable of the lost sheep. Um, And they're talking about the tax collectors and sinners, how they were approaching to uh, listen to Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. And they said, uh, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the one lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. That's uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 7. I, I wanted to read that because, you know, in the time that we're in, I say that my mother lived through the civil rights movement and my children are living through the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, So it's a very interesting dynamic to hear my mother's perspective and my children's perspective. And um, there's this thing about the all lives matter. That 99, yes, that 99 we know, he he cares about the 99, but he is going after that one. And, And that is for us and everything that Jesus is pursuing us. And he is after us. And when we get lost, he goes after us. And and it is um, perplexing to me that Christians aren't seeing that. Not all, but there have been some Christians that see, all all they say is, well, all lives matter. Well, yeah, we know that. (laughs) We know they do. But when there is one particular, that one, that something is happening to, should we not care? Should we not pursue that? That's what Jesus did, and he is our example. So my question to you is, what would you say is the role of the church when it comes to racism, and how would you like to see the body of Christ fulfill the role? Well, 
Um, I think the role of the church is to write um, the the full gospel mm. that um, we can we have a, a message. There's a message of the gospel, and um, it, there is a living out of that. Mm. Um, the way Jesus interacted with the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think holding to Micah six eight to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly mm. with God. I think the the role of the church. I really hope will be to uh, to have a voice and take a stand mm. in um, applying the truths of the gospel and the nature and character of God to society and our culture, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing that, of course, it is a, a spiritual um, reality mm. and um, that we can't we want Jesus to change hearts, mm. but it doesn't um, doesn't stop there, or mm. that's not the whole picture. I think of, you know, it's kind it's kind of a strange expression of it, but I think of Psalm thirty four three that says, "Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together." Mm. And I just think of that that like, come, let's go together to show what. God is like and what mm-hmm. Jesus has done mm-hmm. and to express it in a lot of different ways that we wouldn't have just one expression um, of that. And we would certainly have the expression of human dignity mm-hmm. and uh, justice for all people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that I can't remember part of your question, but I, I just hope the church recognizes what it means to be a neighbor. And, um, our, our church has been doing a series about that. And I think it, um, we've maybe, especially in the white church, if I can use that as a phrase, it's been pretty narrowly defined and, um, and maybe things have been politicized instead of seeing it as a um, gospel or Christian issue, seeing it as a political issue. And I think that may just be a, um, a scheme of the enemy, to be honest. I would agree. Would it, I, I do believe that too, that Satan is in, Satan is in that. He is, he is in the not acknowledging the sin of racism. He is in the division of brothers and sisters based on race. And he is in the deception that the gospel message isn't for everyone. I don't think anyone would really say the gospel is not for everyone, but when you act a particular way, you are saying that person doesn't deserve the gospel. Mm. That's how I see it. So if if I am in ju- if I'm just standing in judgment and I have no grace, I am saying I will not give the gospel message to that person. Oh my goodness, I have to tell you this. One time I went to a it was a it was a faith gathering of women, and one of the people that helped put that 
uh, organization together was a man. We did it with this another woman. And he came out and he spoke and he was kind of joking around and he was talking about how the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses go to certain neighborhoods. And I, I was flabbergasted when he said that. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, and people were laughing. I thought, why is this funny? Like, why is it not all of us entering in to every neighborhood? And because the neighborhoods he were he was talking about, because he mentioned something, he either said urban or inner city, but he mentioned a terminology that is code for black. And mm. I was stunned. I just couldn't believe it. And I was... Uh, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know what to think, but I, I know after that I did not go to any more of that organization's events, and it was a very big organization. It did events all over the United States uh, because I thought to myself, "You're basically saying they don't deserve the gospel, they don't deserve the truth, and that mm -hmm. only certain quote sex will enter sex as an S E C T will enter into that area or that neighborhood." So, yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, the, the role of the church, I think you answered the question. And um, it's to have a voice, it's to stand against spiritual warfare, because that's what this is. That's another thing I don't get. It looks like people, but this is spiritual warfare. And to not recognize or acknowledge it, and to take the stance of what a man says instead of the stance of what the word of God says. Yeah. Um, that is something very perplexing to me and that I struggle with. Yeah. And I think also just the idea of being willing to search my own heart. Mm. Um, and I just think, and to examine our history mm. and to examine the history of the church mm -hmm. and to, I think it, that just seems very biblical <laughs> To be, do you know that that God calls us to mourn with those who mourn? I have been so grieved by um, those I've seen in the church that maybe don't recognize what it means um, to to a black person that watches or can't even watch the video of George Floyd yes. because of the and the pain there and does not recognize the, the opportunity to be the love of Christ and to um, enter in to that pain with empathy and compassion rather than with talking points and um, rebuttals or um, questions about, um, George Floyd's character or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that is the role of the church and sadly maybe has not been, um, demonstrated very well. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, Missy, this has been great. As usual, we didn't laugh as much as we usually do. 
<laughs> maybe it was the subject matter, but yeah, usually we cannot get through a conversation without having a case of the giggles. Um, if that's good in this instance, we professional. But um, I want to thank you again. I want to thank you for sitting with me today. But most of all, I want to thank you for your friendship. And I want to thank you for the way you raise your children and uh, just the way you see the gospel and the way you interact in the world. Um, so, listeners, until next time, our next episode, I'll be sitting with Tate, Missy's son, and we will have an interesting conversation. But until then, take care of yourselves and may God's love, mercy, and grace be upon you. Oh, my friend Missy, I learned things about her I never knew and grew to appreciate her even more. I love how honest, real, vulnerable, and fun our conversations are. Missy is genuine and kind and a I'm going to carry this burden with you kind of sister. Her ability to admit her blind spots, educate herself, and ask for help when needed is so appreciated. Missy is committed to walking out the gospel in her life and in the lives of those she encounters. One last thing in the show notes, I put the link to the first video of the series Missy mentioned her church, Nona Church, it's N-O-N-A Church, presented called Won't You Be My Neighbor? I also added the link to the YouTube video by Christy Gior, G-I-O-R, the white woman who cares for her black daughter's hair. And finally, if you would like to support Bill and Missy's mission to reach high school students with the hope of Christ, you can give to give.crew, C-R-U, dot org slash zero three eight 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 three four that link is also in the show notes don't forget to subscribe and rate us on apple podcasts itunes spotify google podcasts or wherever you listen to your pods connect with me on instagram at rambrina rettle and my grit podcast facebook page and my blog rambrinarettle.wordpress.com this podcast is produced by me, Barbrina, and Handcrafted Studios. Original music by Handcrafted Studios, composer Michael Coffey. Until next time, keep your grit up by getting real while immersed in truth.